0: Hey everyone, quick note here at the top. The news in Gaza is moving fast. At the time we recorded this, the Israeli government was considering a hostage deal with Hamas, which could include a pause in fighting. We'll have more on that after the holiday. Today's show is about how the conflict in the Middle East is resonating back at home and how it will continue to resonate no matter what the next few days bring. So, Alex, Can you watch this ad with me?
1: Okay, yes.
0: Alex Salmon writes about politics for Slate. I just sent it to you. Okay. This political ad I wanted Alex to watch. Versions of it have been cropping up around the country. In New York, Pittsburgh, anywhere there's a progressive congressperson who is not fully supporting Israel's war in Gaza. She's one of only seven Democrats in Congress to vote against missile protection for Israel. This ad is from Detroit. It takes on Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Her legislation would allow the terrorists to rearm themselves. And she refuses to answer even this horrific question.
1: You can't comment about Hamas terrorists chopping off baby pets? Tell
0: Rashida Tlaib. This ad wraps up by saying Tlaib is on the wrong side of humanity urging viewers to call her directly and complain. I'm kind of curious, like, what when you see ads like this, like, what you think as a political reporter.
1: I mean, the yeah, the ending note is crazy. Uh, against humanity is a, is a, you know, it's a tough indictment to beat.
0: Is it fair, do you feel like?
1: Oh, I mean, I would certainly say no. The idea about rearming terrorists and the description of those votes, I would say are just ultimately not very accurate descriptions uh, of her record or even any of those resolutions in Congress.
0: Alex has been thinking about ads like this one because of what they say about the Democratic Party, where it's at and where it's going. Leadership has struggled to work with the progressive squad since the beginning, but the war in Gaza has brought all those bad feelings to the surface. It's brought money too. The Israel lobby has promised to spend as much as $100 million to get representatives like Rashida Tlaib out of office this cycle. The thing is, many Americans seem to agree with the progressive stance here, at least in part. Even congressional staffers have been chafing at their bosses' unyielding commitment to Israel, especially military aid. Hundreds walked off the job to protest.
1: There are like tectonic shifts going on, I think, under the surface in in American politics right now, especially as pertaining to the Israel issue. And I think you know the Washington establishment, the Biden administration, a lot of these offices have been really slow to react because it has never happened like this before. Uh, it's something very different.
0: What does the onslaught of expensive ads tell you about who's winning this disagreement over Israel right now?
1: The Israel lobby, of course, is 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 very, very powerful. And, you know, maybe the most powerful lobby in Washington, in, in, incredibly well-funded. At the same time, you know, if you're winning the hearts and minds of people, you don't need to spend tens of millions of dollars. You don't need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think b- both things are true and, and sort of like, we'll see. We'll, sort of the, the, the proof will be in the, in the, in the putting of this election cycle in a lot of ways.
0: Today on the show why no matter what happens in Gaza, the Democratic Party is preparing to be reshaped by war in the Middle East. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, let's start off by talking about what we know about how Americans feel about the war between Israel and Hamas. Like what does polling tell us about that right now?
1: Yeah, it's the the polling is fascinating because for a long time, I think there's been this consensus view that Americans support Israel, period. It's the easiest position to take in the world. You just do it and you don't think about it. And the polling that we've seen on this recent conflict has been so, so, so stark. It's so different than that. And across different demographic groups, It's been resounding the the sort of lack of support for the Israeli response to the Hamas attack is just it's very, very strong. I mean, we have seen now a handful of polls. It started, I think, with the data for progress poll that said a majority of Americans support a ceasefire, which across all political identities, which is astounding. Wow. Yeah, right. It's like a majority of Republicans even broken out, supported a ceasefire majority of independents. And then it was eight, I think 80% of Democrats supported a ceasefire. And that was at a time when 12 maybe representatives in Congress were calling for a ceasefire, maybe fewer than that. You know, it's huge, a chasm between, you know, what we're seeing in Congress and what we're seeing in the sort of American popular sentiment. Obviously, this is a huge concern for Biden's electoral chances.
0: Yeah, younger people tend to want a ceasefire more or want less militarism when it comes to Israel.
1: Absolutely. The sort of handling of the issue altogether, the sort of uh, unlimited military aid, uh, no conditions on that aid, pulls terribly the sort of the sense of the Israeli response in Gaza, uh, overwhelmingly negative feelings towards that. Uh, Biden's embrace of Netanyahu pulls terribly. So, yeah, 18 to 35s, again and again, I think the most recent poll said 70 percent disapprove of Biden's handling of the of the Israel Hamas conflict.
0: So if I was like a Democratic politician, to me, this would be like a check engine light flashing. (laughs) But has it been seen that way in Washington?
1: I think it's starting a little bit. There's a little bit of movement now. I mean, it's been very slow, though. I mean, there's been a ton of resistance to this. And it's like the light is flashing red that this is not what voters want, that it's a huge point of disagreement that is alienating them. And yet the administration has continued on this path Democratic voters already not in love with Joe Biden, as we well know, now have a real thing to hold on to that say it's not just he's old, it's that he's sleepwalking into this thing that we want nothing to do with. And I think that makes all those things much more acute.
0: I should say here, neither Alex nor I put a whole lot of stock into presidential polling a year out from an election. And even though national surveys show many Americans are reluctant to provide unlimited aid to Israel, progressives who speak out are definitely hearing from constituents who feel unheard and alone. Consider the case of Jamal Bowman. He represents New York's 16th District. Just like Rashida Tlaib, the pro-Israel lobby has threatened to primary him. And since October 7th, even some longtime backers have begun to question their support.
1: Yeah, there's a ton of cross-pressure. It's really interesting with Bowman in particular because, right, as you say— a very well-known member of Congress, right? A, a member of the squad. And he's very popular. I mean, he's an incredible communicator. He's someone who's taken a lot of, I think, courageous votes and led on a lot of issues. And in any other sense, you would say this is certainly one of the rising stars in this party. Like, he's a a, a black representative, new to Congress, but has won re-election already. And you see, like, right, this incredible cross-pressure where people say in his district that they love Jamal Bowman. And yet on Israel-Palestine in particular, he gets a ton of heat because there is a lot of organization in that district pro-Israel organizations have a lot of purchase in Westchester County and in these places he represents. And so they're wired into a very, very effective organizing network that's that's very well-funded.
0: Yeah. I mean, according to this reporting in the Times, Jamal Bowman was literally being told, don't show up to this Jewish event. People don't want you there, which is just like, that seems big to me because you always want your elected representative there if you're an organized group.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So you get a sense of how acrimonious this is.
0: So, does someone like Jamal Bowman have a primary challenger? yet, like someone who's gonna step forward and basically say, like, "Okay, I'm going to represent Israel here while, you are doing what you're doing."
1: It's funny It's actually funny because local news in in Westchester County has reported that George Latimer, who's the Westchester county executive, he's a, a white man. he's seventy years old. He would be one of the oldest freshman, you know, uh yeah, a 70-year-old freshman has decided to run against Bowman. Um Latimer himself has sort of been a little wishy-washy on it. He hasn't like made a big announcement and and is sort of like I don't know if there's some last-second cold feet going on here, but like I think the the general assumption is that he is going to pr- attempt to primary Jamal Bowman in this seat.
0: Yeah. I'm sort of curious where Democratic leadership is on all of this because the control of Congress is really tight there's a chance that in the next cycle you know Democrats do better it's just it's so so close so how is someone like Keem Jeffries who's leading the Democrats in Congress how is he thinking about something like a primary threat to Jamal Bowman who is very popular and sort of survived in New York when a lot of Democrats didn't
1: yeah it's it's an incredible tension. It's like one of the great sort of profound stories, I think, in this election cycle. And and I'm so curious to see how this is going to play out because right on one hand, you have Hakeem Jeffries, who is a lover of incumbency. He's like his whole thing, <laughs> like to a fault, loves incumbency. Like if you're an incumbent Democrat, and you are opposed to abortion, this is actually not even a hypothetical, you're opposed to abortion rights, you are opposed to gun control, you basically are an enemy of every Democratic policy priority, but you're an incumbent Democrat, Hakeem Jeffries will go to the mat for you. He will protect you. He will spend money. He will endorse you. That's how he is. That's always who he's been. And he even started his own PAC to protect Democratic incumbents against progressive primary challengers. Uh,
0: I'm sensing a but is coming.
1: There's a huge butt coming. Yes, there's a huge butt coming, which is that... Uh, that has not really had to extend to progressives because there haven't been that many incumbent progressives in the past. And now there are, now there are seven of them, the ones that we've mentioned who have been, have done at least one cycle. Some of them are two and three term incumbents and they now are marked for primary challenges and they're going to be extremely well-funded primary challenges. And Hakeem Jeffries is going to have to take a position on this. And I can tell you now, he does not want to, he does not want to at all because the challenges are going to be funded by his own backers. I mean, like in the last election cycle, Hakeem Jeffries received more money from the Israel lobby than any other outside group. Like if you go to like the APAC website, Hakeem Jeffries is all over it. It's like video montage of Hakeem Jeffries and photo of Hakeem Jeffries and then like all of Republican House leadership and then like Hakeem Jeffries again. Like this is who he is. And now the same group is going to spend probably $100 million in primary races in the Democratic Party in this coming cycle. And a lot of that money is going to be spent opposing progressives who are incumbents in the Democratic Party, the same people that Hakeem Jeffries has said will be defended under any other circumstances, no matter what. And the challenge is is crazy because, you know, is he going to go against his own backers? Is he only going to go against his own funders and protect these incumbents? You would have to say if he doesn't do that, it's an insane Active hypocrisy, but at the same time, if they're going to defend these progressives against these primary challenges, they're going to have to spend against hundred million dollars in spending. So, are we talking about spending that you know precious limited resources in safe blue districts to ward off the very same people that are funding Hakeem Jeffries? Like, you know, all the wires are crossed here, and and it's it's a really really interesting problem.
0: After the break, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee has been getting more powerful for years. But it's how it's using that power that's really important. When Alex Salmon mentioned APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, and the way they've started targeting progressive incumbents, I wanted to talk to him more about that. On the one hand, it made perfect sense to me that an interest group would want to make Washington as amenable to its desires as possible. But I did wonder how this one group had made itself so important. So I asked Alex to tell me.
1: APAC is so interesting because it is a group that has long identified itself as bipartisan. It's a group that endorses Republicans, gives them money, that uh, supports them in a lot of ways. It also endorses Democrats and gives them money and supports them in a lot of ways for a long time was sort of seen as as just a truly bipartisan organization. It's not that really anymore. And in the last handful of years, they've hired, you know, the digital director from, like, the Trump Republican National Committee. They've hired out of, like, the evangelical world. They've, like, staffed up at, like, really senior levels from really, really conservative organizations. Hmm. And not coincidentally, what has happened is that they have – change the way that they operate in american politics especially in democratic politics what do you mean so in the last cycle in the 2022 cycle they did something which they had never done before which is they got involved in outside spending independent expenditure spending in democratic primaries which they'd never done before they don't do this in republican primaries they still don't do it um But they got involved in a really profound way, which is that they raised a bunch of money from Republican megadonors, Bernie Marcus, Paul Singer, like top Trump supporters, really conservative uh, luminaries and stalwarts. Um, And they ended up spending upwards of $30 million in open Democratic primary races, which are safe blue seats. Uh, A lot of them were either vacant because of retirements or because of redistricting. And their goal was basically to ensure that the most conservative Democrat in that race won the race because they know Republicans can't compete there, but they want to move the political spectrum to the right. And so they champion these conservative Democrats in these races. Importantly, often Israel policy was not mentioned even once. And they managed at an incredibly high clip to win these races. So they really were very successful. The amount of spending was staggering. We're talking about 35 million dollars. Is that a lot? It's so much. (laughs) It is so much. It's the most of any independent outside group for congressional races, you know, spending 4 million, 5 million, 7 million dollars in one house district, which is often what happened, is so much money. And we had never seen that before. And now they are saying that they are going to triple that in the coming cycle. So there's a sense that the model worked. And the reason it worked, in part, was because Democratic leadership didn't say anything. They, you know, they had a chance to head this off. They could have said that this is unacceptable for a a group that's raising money from Republicans that is, you know, staffed by Republicans, that is, you know, in very many ways in lockstep with the Republican Party to intervene in Democratic elections is not acceptable. They didn't do that.
0: I mean, you're not alone in your alarm over this. Like, a Democratic advisor told The New York Times... That had been in politics for thirty years, but the last cycle was the first time he'd seen a disturbing new phenomenon, which was two groups, APAC and crypto, getting involved in democratic primaries with big amounts of money. I just wonder, though. Explain to me why it's disturbing. Because to play devil's advocate, isn't APAC just representing their interest, which is pro-Israel?
1: Yeah, if that were the case, that it could be easier. It would be easier to, to, to contend with. But that's not how this has happened. And I think that it's really important that that's not the case, especially in that 2022 cycle. The ads that we were seeing were actually not like the ads that we just watched uh, against Rashida Tlaib. They were ads that scarcely mentioned Israel policy at all. In fact, often they made no mention of it because this wasn't really a high salience issue for a lot of Democratic voters. And so they knew that they weren't going to win elections by saying, this person supports unlimited military aid to Israel. Please vote for them. That's not a popular position anyways. And so these ads never said that. These ads said, this candidate that we're backing is the real Democrat. This is the person that's going to back Joe Biden. This is the person that's going to get the agenda passed. And I would say, you know, not to be to put too fine a point on it, but like pretty misleading, like pretty strongly misleading given what was actually happening. Because what what the actual motivation was, of course, was like, try to make the caucus as conservative as possible. Try to get people in there who will be amenable to Republican policy priorities and positions because we're, again, this is a group, it's raising money for Republicans. It's staffed by Republicans, you know, at the same time as they were doing all this uh, action in in Democratic primaries, they endorsed 109 House Republicans who voted to overturn the 2020 election results. So, you know, this is not like, this is not even like a sort of moderate sort of shoot the gap in the middle thing. This is on the Republican side, they are championing the most extreme and the most right wing
0: is there another interest group that's analogous to APAC?
1: Yeah, I think I think actually the best analog is is the NRA. Is is the National Rifle Association. Why do you say that? There are a number of reasons. It's almost hard to believe now, but the NRA at a t- at a time, not that long ago, was also a bipartisan organization. It was like a, you know, it was a very powerful lobby in Washington, tons of funding, Ah, uh, very influential. Endorsed Democrats, endorsed Republicans. Democrats wanted wanted endorsements from the NRA. It was like perceived to be like really a really smart policy position, right? To be pro gun, and and they they wanted that backing. They sought it out, and they and they bragged about it when they got it. And there were money reasons for that. There were also supposedly like strategic policy reasons. And then the NRA underwent a really dramatic shift, and in a very similar way to what we're seeing with APAC started staffing up from Republican groups, from far right groups in particular, the whole organization sort of like experienced a mission creep to the right pretty quickly. And in just a couple of cycles, it went from being a group that was truly actually bipartisan to being a group that was so far to the right that no Democrat would want an NRA uh, endorsement. No Democrat would court the NRA for support. And they certainly wouldn't say out loud to Democratic voters, hey, I have the backing of the NRA. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now with APAC in a lot of ways. Like the, the there are these eerie parallels in terms of the staffing decisions, in terms of the way the organization has moved to the right. It's embraced Republican policy priorities far beyond the scope of the thing that it most cares about, allegedly, which is you know was gun control with the NRA, is Israel policy with APAC. This is a group that's basically in lockstep with the Republican agenda across the board, and. Uh, and I think part of the reason we're seeing them spend so much is because of this tension, because the group is moving so far to the right. Um, they know that they can't just quietly do things the way that they used to. And that sort of thing is ultimately kind of untenable.
0: Let's say APAC gets everything it wants <laughs> and a bunch of progressive Congress people are out. Maybe some more conservative Democrats are in or maybe even Republicans. What does that mean? Like, where does that leave Congress?
1: Yeah. So that is a really important caveat to put on my last point, which is that, yes, uh, their influence may in fact be waning, unless this works, because if it works, then it's a profoundly different political landscape. For one thing, it's taken a lot of a lot of years to build up this sort of progressive base in Congress. And it's not big, right? It's, It's you know, we're talking about seven members there. There are some squad adjacent members who are very progressive as well. But you wouldn't say exactly that they're the same. It's taken a lot of years and a lot of organizing and a lot of infrastructure building and a lot of commitment to do this. And it could all be gone in one election night. And once that's gone, it's very hard to build it back up. And And for the party itself, I mean, can you imagine swapping out, you know, Jamal Bowman, I think, is 47. But, you know, for Congress, that's young. For For Democrats in Congress, that is very young. He is the future of the party in a lot of ways, right? We always say, like, what's the future of this party? It's like this multiracial uh, coalition, young voters. Like, Jamal Bowman does great with young voters. Imagine knocking him out of Congress for a white 70-year-old freshman conservative, moderate conservative backbencher who's going to spend, what, a couple of years in Congress and then retire? I mean, the reset is is horrible for the long-term longevity of the party because this is where it's going when we've, you know, both moderate and progressive Democrats have said, this is how we see ourselves. This is the future. If you lose all those, all those young reps, all those people who are notable, uh, and who can speak to this coalition that Democrats need to win elections. I mean, that is a huge setback. It's a, it's a colossal setback to the, to the well-being of the party. And that's true. If you're, uh, you know, on the far left end of the spectrum, that's true. If you're in the middle and just would prefer Democrats to, to win elections, uh, in, a, in a, just a very sort of broad, straightforward way.
0: Alex, I'm super grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Alex Salmon is a political writer at Slate. And that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Going over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.